0: Hello and welcome to the Invictus Wellbeing Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Brown, and today on the show, we will be speaking with Tom Wolfe who grew up in Lennox Head on the north coast of New South Wales, and after studying an arts commerce degree in Sydney, he moved to the island of Tasmania to work as a bushwalking guide for a few years. In 2017 and 18, he rode his push bike 10,000 kilometres from Anchorage, Alaska, all the way to Mexico. As well as working with kids in outdoor education, he likes taking photos on 35mm film and writing for a variety of publications about anything and everything. Join me as we discuss life, well-being and lessons from the road with Tom Wolfe. Hey Tom and welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, it's super sweet to yeah to chat and it's kind of weird how we met um, and we'll get to that later. But um, one of the questions I like to ask people just so that uh, our listeners have a background is about your childhood. So could you describe your childhood for us? What was it like, um, growing up?
1: Uh, my childhood. So I grew up in Lennox Head, which is Northern New South Wales for those who don't know. And I, I'm actually just moved back here. So, um, it's actually been a nostalgic time lately. Just remembering a lot of stuff, but, Mm -hmm. um, I guess a lot of it was spent outside. Um, especially, I guess, once I started surfing, I started sort of getting in the water when, when I was about 10. And prior to that, I spent still spent a lot of time outside as a kid just riding bikes and billy carts and all manner of stuff. We were always encouraged to be outside by our parents. Um, and then when I started surfing, it sort of went into overdrive and I basically spent, like my summer holidays were spent with six to eight hours at the beach. My friend used to live across the road. Um, So we would pretty much just surf and then we'd either play basketball or play surfing on PlayStation to stay Mm -hmm. out of the midday heat and then we'd go back in the surf. Yeah. Um, So it was very much an outdoor childhood, I would say, to a large extent. And I had sisters growing up, so I had people to hang out with. And then, although I don't know how well we got along when we were little kids. Mm-hmm. But, um, and yeah, and then just I had a lot of friends and we did a whole bunch. So I remember making videos of us skating and all kinds of just stuff outside basically. Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, tell me about like the intellectual environment you grew up in. You grew up in a small town. Um, what, you know, what's your parents' story? How does their story influence your story?
1: Um, I guess I was pretty lucky in that respect. So my mum grew up. In Ballina and my dad grew up in Sydney um, and they sort of chose to move up here when I was about two years old Uh, but they've I'm actually the son of two lawyers so both my parents are lawyers um, and have a pretty keen interest in a lot of things but I guess I'd probably say one of their big interests that they share is art so growing up with exposed to being exposed to a lot of art and I guess music as most kids are. Um, and I think you don't appreciate how much your parents teach you and how much they influence your worldview until you get older. Like I'm 29 now and you get, you really come to realize that they shape who you are to a large extent, whether you like to uh, agree with that when you're a teenager <laughs> or not. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I was always challenged, and um, i i it, yeah I guess I grew up in quite an intellectual household. We'd always be having discussions about things at the dinner table, and probably as we got older, having two sisters, um there was a lot of i guess often heated debate, but yep. i guess healthy, heated debate about yep. all kinds of things. Do
0: you feel like, Uh, do you feel like your parents modelled how to debate? Was there there any, was there any implicit teaching around how to have a, an intellectual discussion in in terms of debating ideas rather than debating people?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think very much so. I think something that they taught me very much was, and I'm, it's kind of been a learning process for me still is that you like, I don't like the idea that you rely on people's, you, you pigeonhole people. So when you're having a debate with someone, you can pigeonhole them as, you know, they vote liberal or they, uh, you know, are a forester or whatever it might be. Yep. And if you, if you pigeonhole people and make assumptions about that in a debate, which I guess is a natural thing for us to do as humans, mm. you kind of limit the scope of the debate. Yeah, and I also think you. More importantly, you limit the ability to influence their, I guess, view. Yep. Um, not to say that you have the right view and they have the wrong view, but if you if there's something that you believe in strongly, then your ability to persuade them, I think, is limited if you pigeonhole them. I think that's mm-hmm. something that I've really learned. That's yeah, super important.
0: That's awesome. It's really fascinating um, talking to Tom because you realize that, well, you're 29, haven't you lived like three lives? How many jobs <laughs> have you done? Um, and I know you're a writer. Um, you've also worked as an outdoor ed guide. Um, but one of, the, one of the big things that grabs people's attention about your story is the bike ride you went on. Um, and I don't want to preempt that too much, but could you tell us a little bit about that time you rode a bike? <laughs>
1: Yeah. So it's funny, I guess, cause now it's, I got back in September of 2018. So a little while ago now. Um, and I just kind of refer to it in conversation as the bike trip. And often people don't know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what is the, bike? And I don't, <laughs> yeah, so I don't, it's hard. It's one of those things where you, you don't want to talk yourself. If sometimes it feels like you're just talking about something that you did. I mean, I remember once my one of my really good friends, we were talking about how you come back from a trip like that and people sort of ask you, like, oh, how was it? And you just are kind of like, oh, it was good because... Yeah, it's like... It's like, like, like how a- do I even... Yeah, how do I even begin to explain what it was for me? Because, I mean, firstly, I did it by myself for the most part. So I was... Yeah, I started... So basically... I flew to Anchorage with a bike that I had bought in Colorado. Um and I guess the original intention was to ride from Anchorage in the north of in in Alaska, the the biggest city in Alaska to Ushuaia which is the end of the road in Patagonia so the bottom of South America. So like basically the whole of the Americas on a bicycle um
0: did you have a set time frame before you set out or were you kind of like hey i'm a free spirit i'm gonna like just ride south and keep going till i run out of land
1: yeah my my vague idea was two to three years yep. that was kind of what i put aside for it so um, and that
0: that's most people wouldn't get that far because i mean i backpacked around the world for about half a year um in 2012 and um, one of the biggest questions that came up all the time in, in backpackers and in places you stay and places you meet people was, Hey, how, how long's your trip? And people were like, Oh, three weeks. And the next person be like, Oh, I'm off for two months. And then we'd be like, Six months. We're like, Six months. How are you doing that? And here you are saying, Oh, two to three years. Like, how do you even carve that out of your life? Like, what's, what is it about your, I guess, mental state going into something like that that allows you to say, Oh, I'm just going to do this for? an extended period of time?
1: Well, I came up with the idea when I was 21 or 20. Um, and I me- I said, well, it, re- it wasn't originally going to be a bike trip. It was going to be a just a surf trip with um, a car and yeah. do it with a bunch of mates and just drive south from Alaska, basically. Yeah. And over the years, so it was another six years between when I first thought of the idea and when I actually did it. Um, and it wasn't like I was planning the whole time. I just sort of always knew that it was going to happen for me. And over time it became a thing that I quickly realized other people weren't still interested in doing because of whatever reasons, whether they had long term partners or they yep. were, had a job that they wanted to keep or, or they just weren't really interested. Yeah. Um, and so I, um, I just decided. I guess, like, I got to the. I got to being twenty six, and I was. I'd been saving for a couple of years, um, okay, and so
0: that's important. So it wasn't without planning. Like you, you.
1: No, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because I think um, so. People, yeah,
0: people look at these adventures that others are happening, and they're sort of like, How, "Why do you get to be the lucky one?" But actually, you worked really hard to put yourself in a position to be able to go.
1: Yeah, I mean, I. I mean, I come. I'm. I've like led a pretty. Privileged upbringing, like I always had everything I needed and stuff. But a lot of the time, people would always be like, "Well, how can you afford to do these trips and blah blah?" And I was like, "Well, I don't, you know, I don't go out and spend two hundred dollars at, you know, going out at night, or I don't go out for dinner very often. Yeah. I, I save my money. I prioritize mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I'd rather, you know, most of my pursuits apart from petrol, like surfing, doesn't cost too much once you buy what you need. Yeah." Um, and so it was always kind of just a prioritizing of I'd rather save the money now for something in the future than, than just spend it on whatever basically. Mm, Um, so yeah, it kind of came down to that. And I remember thinking, uh, the money that I had saved before I left, I was like, I could, I could buy a house. I could, I had enough for a house deposit basically. Yeah. And I was like, well, I could, buy a house and spend the rest of my life thinking about this trip that I didn't do, or I can go on the trip and I'll worry about the rest later, which is kind of where I'm at now. (laughs) (laughs) And no regrets. No, 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 none at all. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, we could go through your trip for a long time. And I mean, when I met you, Tom, we sort of spent what, like two or three days camping together when we'd never met before and um, kind of just had so much to talk about. So, Um, sort of how do you condense it really but I'd love it if you could give us maybe like one or two highlights like key points from the trip and then maybe um, your reflection on what you learned about yourself and about human nature and about what a good life looks like because that's at Invictus we're really interested in that idea of, of human flourishing and well-being and how to like what does it what does a good life look like does it look different for everyone are there some like things that positive psychology teaches us that apply to everyone or maybe they don't. And so, um, from your lived experience, I'd love a couple of sort of highlight moments and then a a big takeaway.
1: Um, I think one big, uh, moment for me was I was actually rereading an article that I wrote last year. Um, so I ended up spending, uh, a week on a fishing boat with an old fisherman who'd been fishing for most of his life. He's also called Tom Bonnellino <laughs> and he basically taught me. So when I was in the last, when I was in British Columbia and Alaska, it was the salmon runs. Mm-hmm. So this, um, which is probably one of the most amazing things I've ever witnessed. Um, but he basically taught me the, we got to the end of the week and he was like, you owe me 1500 bucks. Cause I just taught you my whole university course. Um, Cause he basically, he teaches, course at university of british columbia about um salmon and ecosystems because it's Mm -hmm. all about um sort of forestry and how that's impacted on salmon populations in british columbia yeah uh but he the thing that i learned from him was that we have this i think that we have this over-reliance now on statistical data and and not to say that that stuff isn't important but I I think that sometimes when we're looking at the world and how to deal with what's happening at the moment, we forget to talk to people who've been dealing with that specific thing for their whole lives. So he's been observing fish, fish populations and fish and he understands that stuff much better than I ever would. Yeah. And so the, the I just feel like the sort of the analogy side of um. Of understanding and an observation side of understanding our world is sometimes neglected mm. for for data and statistics which you know is relevant and useful in its place but it doesn't really have a soul yeah. in I think I mean I'm not a mathematician so a mathematician, yeah. mathematician is great, but um, and
0: you talk to a lot of um, researchers and statisticians and I guess the idea is that depending on the question you ask the data you can get all sorts of results um totally. I, I love the idea of from Bill Mollison, the founder of Permaculture, where he says, although the, the um problems in the world seem overwhelmingly complex, the solutions remain incredibly simple.
1: Uh yeah, how, how does that resonate
0: true. with what you learnt in British Columbia?
1: Um yeah, I, I kind of grapple with whether I I often think with a lot of the issues that I like to think about, you can sometimes they just seem so infinitely simple, the solutions, but then they also feel infinitely complex at the same time. So it's yep. kind of like, yeah, well, it's simple, but it's also complex. And it's, mm-hmm. so I kind of end up like, <laughs> I guess the, the basic solution is simple, but how we get there is maybe more complex, yep. if you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So I guess in that instance, this, the solution that he had or the i guess the um the solution in that instance was stop clear felling forests because this is it causes soil to m- migrate and then you get smothering and it's like that's basically what caused salmon populations to to implode yeah um, how we get there is very different because say the demand for paper is huge, the demand for yeah. whatever you know specialty timber and et cetera so it's much more complex to then go and say, okay, well, need, we need to uh, rearrange our forestry practices. How do we do that? Um, because the demand isn't changing. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, like I guess you can, it's a tricky one.
0: It's amazing. I do think. My wife's Canadian, and, and um, I've spent a lot of time flying from Vancouver to Kelowna in British Columbia. And I'd say over the last 10 years, we've just seen that forest disappearing. Um, And it's so strange and I never connected the dots that the destruction of that habitat would be having such a negative impact on fish populations, but it makes complete sense. Um, Do you think that that idea of ecosystem collapse being at the root of the fish's well-being problem, and I'm taking a metaphor here, how do you see that translating into our lives as humans? Do you think that the way that we experience or don't experience well-being is a function of the broader ecosystem we've created? And I mean that not just in terms of the biosphere, but in terms of the structures of human life now. Or do you think it's more individual than that? Because we're uh, saying, oh, you know, it's it's too much TV, or it's too much this, or um, you know, we're not in, we're not in community anymore. And are they the problems or are they just a symptom of the broader ecological problem, if you you see what I'm saying?
1: I think very much so. It's a product of the ecosystem that we've created. Um, I guess that makes me think a lot about uh, when I was younger, I went to Malawi. I spent six months in Africa because I, I studied international relations at university.
0: And so, um, listeners, I- this is what I mean when I say Tom's...
1: <laughs> so many things in his life. So
0: yeah, sorry, you were back in Malawi.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so I decided to go, thanks to some I've some money that was loaned to me by my parents after asking them very nicely. <laughs> uh, I went to East Africa basically on my own again. I actually met with a friend for a little while and the intention was to go there and observe I I thought that I wanted to work in aid work Um, and I went there with the intention of seeing how the structures worked over there and all of that kind of stuff and my biggest issue and I think there's a lot of great aid work I don't wish to criticize that at all but I guess what it made me realize about the world that we live in say in Australia is that the things that we were telling people, the things that I saw being told to, to locals in Malawi about what you need and how, how to improve your life and based, we're often based around an increased reliance on, say, money and things like that. Um, and so, but what I noticed there was that the things that I value as incredibly important, say, like uh, time, uh, community, Uh, things of that nature, like more Mm -hmm. sort of basic uh, human traits or whatever you'd like to call. Yeah. They, they were kind of neglected and Mm -hmm. not appreciated. And so I felt at the time, like, I guess coming back to the ecosystem thing, it's like, well, what, what does our human ecosystem in Australia place its value on? And to me, it's often put in the wrong areas. So when people say, oh, they're watching too much TV or the kid spends too much time on the iPad or whatever it may be, that is, like you said, it's a symptom of a of an ecosystem that is is centred around, I think the values have changed. Mm. Um, and it feels to me, maybe I'm just being overly optimistic, but it feels to me like that's starting to shift because people are realising that where you can have, I mean, it's always been known, you know, money can't make you happy or whatever it might be. But I think the value, people are starting to recognize value, say, in indigenous wisdom and things that, in the pre, that were previously overlooked that are now seen as ways to better understand the ecosystem that we live in. Yeah. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. It's fantastic. I keep thinking that, you know, we've just, it's like a treadmill, you know, when you, you're on a treadmill and it's going real quick and you have to keep running or you'll fall over. Like you can't, you have to slow down slowly. It's like we've wound up society to this frenetic pace where we're just going and going and going. And, um, and yet we can't step off because we don't to Except how- for
1: now we've got the opportunity to yep. slow the treadmill down. Yeah, And I think that I, like how it was caused we'll probably never know the answer to uh, talking about coronavirus. Yeah. But my very big, my my deep hope is that this is an opportunity for us to, to sit there and go, okay, whatever we're doing isn't working. How do we change it? And I think like a big part of what we've been gifted is time to think about it. Yeah. Um, like many people are still working and you know, some people have no time, like medical people have yeah. barely any time at the moment, probably they're yeah. busy as anything. But I think for a lot of us, there's an opportunity to to redirect where we're going. Mm. And mm. we've actually just got to, do, you know, the opportunities there, we just have to decide whether we're going to take it or not really. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I guess your bike trip, um, just coming back to that central thread, um, your bike trip, I guess life had to be simple because you were self-sufficient on the road. Everything you owned or had with you was on your bike or on your, your small trailer behind your bike. Um, what lessons about living simply and and living in community did you learn on that trip that maybe we can all benefit from now in the midst of COVID and, and potentially a simpler life in its wake?
1: Um, I guess something that I've always... Well, something that I've taken for granted for quite a long time now is that prior to the bike trip, I was a bushwalking guide and worked and did a lot of kind of multi-day hikes, whether solo with friends or for work. And then on the bike trip again, I think what I have, one thing that I've always taken for granted is that I've had a lot of experiences where you're stripped back to basically just food, water and shelter. Like, Mm. If I, I don't care about what's happening in politics because and part, I probably don't have reception anyway, but I don't really care about that right now because I've run out of water. Yeah. Well, ho- you know, it has happened. I don't. But, geez, hopefully, I don't run out of water very often. But yeah. you know, <laughs> I have I have this much food and I'm not going to see another shop for three days. So, do I have enough food? Do I have enough water? Mm-hmm. Where am I going to sleep tonight? Um, how far do I have to ride? how many hills are there in the meantime. Yeah. Um, so that kind of stuff, when you strip back your thinking to those basic yeah. elements of, of, of being a human being really, Yeah. there's a lot of, I guess there's a lot of value in it. And there's also like an appreciation, like even, even just things like if you're walking for three days in, in, in the bush and you have to carry all your rubbish, it's amazing how much more aware you are of how much rubbish you're producing in three days, because there it is in your backpack and you're carrying it and it's an extra kilo or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and so just that increased awareness of what you need, how much you're producing as a human and your impact through that um, mm. were probably the biggest things I learned. The only thing I'd say about that trip was, I guess I was alone, but without all the people that I met, I would never have been able to do the trip. So I met just so many amazing people over the course of that, that couple of years that my trip would have been like, you know, a 10th of what it was if I hadn't have met those people. Um, So that was kind of a really, it it definitely reinforced my faith in humanity. Um, That's
0: That's a good thing, isn't it? That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: Because I think um, community is one of the most powerful things we have and often it's broken down because we fear the other. But I, I guess on a trip like that, to a certain extent, did you find that you just had to trust people because you need, like, you really just needed them?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I always came back to trusting my gut a lot. Yeah. Um, which which is also a thing that i see as pretty valuable and is not easy thing to do it takes a lot of it took well for me personally it took a lot of time and still is a learning process of l- knowing when when you're getting that feeling that you just know is instinctual and you have to trust it so there was yeah. certain experiences that could have been portrayed by or you know even by me as as potentially dangerous or you know, risky or, or whatever it might be. But all those experiences, I kind of trusted my gut in an instinctual instinctual way and made a decision based off that. Yeah. Um uh, I mean, I was even listening to Mick Fanning, the surfer talk yesterday about, um, when he got attacked by the shark and then yeah. in the time since, uh, if there's been he was a f- talking about a few moments where in the past he had ignored um, that, that gut instinct about things. And, they, and then he's now so hyper aware of it that when he's out in the water and gets that feeling, he doesn't even question it. He just goes in. Like yeah. even if there's no, it's, you know, it's a bluebird day and there's yeah. nothing in the water. He's just like, nah, that's something telling me yeah. that something mm. is off. It's interesting, so I guess.
0: talking right at the beginning about how we've got this um, really strong reliance on sort of the high priests of data. And um, but there's so many ways of knowing things in life. And you mentioned indigenous wisdom before. And I, I wonder how this plays into well-being as well. Like how, how in tune are we with our own Mind, body, psychology, spirituality, everything. And have we stopped being able to listen to ourselves? Because if you think about a question like, how do you know that your partner loves you? Or how do you know your kids love you? It's not like you have a spreadsheet and you're writing, you've got a little stopwatch and you're, oh, 35 minutes of quality time today. Put that in the spreadsheet. Oh, they've said, I love you three times. Add that to the tally. And then you get a little formula that says, oh, they love you 75%. That's not what you do. You just have this, like you said, this gut feeling, this instinct, this intuition. Do you? Do you feel like um, in your observations of people that there's something about the slowness and the stillness of a trip like yours that allows you to tap back into that uh, sense of, I guess, inner wisdom and self-awareness? And, and do you feel like we're deaf to that in modern life?
1: I, I, I think that, I think I've actually been talking a bit lately with a few people that I know about stillness, and I think, I only just thought of that then, but stillness, I definitely think stillness plays into, um, self-awareness. Yep. Um, whether it be like, I'm personally not a person that can sit still very physically very mm-hmm. well, always trying to get a little bit better at it. But if I'm moving in whatever form, surfing, walking, riding my bike, um, my stillness lies in movement most of the time or just, and, and in being outside, I guess. Um, mm. uh, and, and I, and my, yeah, stillness is most, I think my stillness is most there when I'm outside of phone reception and, and have no distractions yeah. that are there. So like if I'm on a four day bushwalk and I'm sitting on a hill, looking out at a landscape for for four hours without even, you know, reading a book or anything Um, that, but, you know, like that, that is where I find a really sort of strong sense of stillness, but Mm -hmm. in the modern world, you can't really do that all the time because that's not how things work. So I'm not suggesting that that's the only way that you can find it. Yeah. But I think stillness in whatever form that takes. And I think it's probably different for each person depending on their context and their story. Yeah. Um, But I think it is a very it's very interlinked with your self-awareness, I would say. Um, So, yeah.
0: Mm, And I think that's one of the gifts as we were sort of reflecting that we've been given right now. So um, I've my wife and I've been talking about whether or not um, because COVID's like lasting for more than two days. We're sort of saying, is this going to last long enough to form a habit? You know how people talk about 40 day habits and all this sort of thing. Like, is it long enough to almost do some of that neural rewiring? And, and I guess that's a fascinating thing to contemplate. Um, did you, I'm just thinking about your trip and you coming back out of that trip. Did you find it hard to readjust to normal life?
1: <laughs> uh, I think one of my friends said to me when i was younger uh she said she i think she just said you're so like you're very good at being adaptable and i think that's something that i've always been pretty good at um, so when i came back and i that trip only ended up lasting about 18 months or a bit more, over 18 months which is i guess is still pretty long yeah. but um <laughs> the It made me realize that my priorities had shifted in my life and I wanted different things in my life. So when I got back, um, a lot of those things sort of started to fall into place. Can you give Um, us an example of that? Oh, I guess there was like, I guess there was a few things. There was like uh, maybe changing my attack a little bit to be more open to being in like, relationships and when I say relationships like a long-term yeah sort of romantic relationship I guess commitment yeah um and compromise to some extent yeah because it had always been about me um and I don't regret that I think that was really important for me personally yeah um and also having land was a big one of those things yeah and also um to get to a point uh, which won't happen immediately where I can grow as much of my own food as as possible Yeah. just because I had experiences where I was on farms for say two weeks and I would only, everything I consumed was from the farm Yeah. and how that made my body feel and how um, and just how it sort of, just mentally, physically everything was so was so noticeable because I was quite aware of it at the time mm. that I was like, how, how can I get to that point? Yeah. That's know, which takes time, but, um, I've been so excited
0: yeah, so to see, um, how many people have actually been turning in that direction. Like seeds have been selling out. Yeah, um, totally. I'm, We've kept chickens before. My wife and I are really into gardening and we, we have a real passion for urban agriculture. And so we've got like chickens on order, but again, like, um, yeah i'm just so encouraged to see how many people are homesteading at the moment and it's one of those things that i I feel there's not you don't get competitive about it it's like oh you're homesteading so i can't like it's more like let's yeah more of us like shared knowledge totally and there's so much old school wisdom that's um yeah that's there and i really hope we don't lose um they're amazing takeaways though from your trip i love that um yeah Sorry, I was going to ask. So you you mentioned that you're an outdoor guide as well um, and and you've spent a lot of time in the wilderness. Um, can you tell us what you've learned about young people working with them in wilderness environments?
1: Uh, I guess, so I was a bushwalking guide for a long time, which was mostly with adults. Um, and then all of last year um, and a little bit of this year before coronavirus, <laughs> I was working with, Uh, kids from 12 to about 17. Um, And I guess what I learned was children, if you give them, so like I was working for Outward Bound, um, which is kind of what we call a journey-based approach to, to outdoor education. So that was, I guess you would say it's of like, Decent amount of like if you've never been camping before it's pretty full-on. Yeah, um, if you've grown up camping It's not going to be too hard. The kids do carry packs and there's a definitely a physical element to it um, But what I realise is if you can get The kids to a point where they are comfortable in that environment um, being outside and being like remote I guess wilderness and remote is kind of a relative term. So for me, it doesn't feel very remote or, we'll, or like a wilderness where we are. Cause it's, it's mm-hmm. accessible right road and stuff for some kids. It could feel like the most remote they've ever been in their lives. So mm-hmm. it's definitely a relative thing. Yeah. Um, but if you can get them to a point where they're comfortable, I think that they're incredibly receptive to what you choose to teach them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I reckon i probably have some form of ADT or something. <laughs> and interestingly, a lot of the kids, like I look back now as a, as an adult and think to myself, how did I sit through 13 years of schooling mm. in a classroom, sitting in a chair? Like I did reasonably well at school, but I I actually am amazed that I did in some ways because... For many kids, putting them in that environment, they are not receptive at all, and and it's seen as, it's seen as you know, oh well, they're not intelligent or they're not smart, and yeah. maybe they're not academically gifted. But I feel like even intelligence is pigeonholed into like, well, if you do well in nature see you're really smart. But it's like, you may have zero common sense, you know, <laughs> in a in a in a wilderness setting or whatever um, it might be. Yeah.
0: And we've disconnected people from their bodies. I know you've met my three-year-old um, Hudson and whenever he learns something new, he's really excited about. Um, The first thing he does is stop talking because he's so overwhelmed, jump up and start running. And I just keep having these visions of him in a future classroom where he, the teacher, you know, explains this is what a capital D looks like or something. And he gets so excited, he jumps up and runs out (laughs) of the room. And I think that's just you like processing the joy of your learning. It's not going to go down well. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I think what you're saying about outdoor ed is really beautiful in that um, that mind-body connection is in place as you're learning.
1: Yeah. And also your your environment is obviously quite different and you're not boxed in by four walls. Mm. Um, and, if, and, and, and and there are times where I would say there's kids in that environment that aren't comfortable yep. and their learning would, would, I would probably say, is compromised in a way because they're not able to concentrate, yep. much like other kids aren't able to concentrate in a classroom.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but, and I guess also, like when I'm teaching them, because we luck- like, like I was really felt really lucky because we were quite there was a structure to the programs, but we there was quite a lot of autonomy in in what we would teach and how we would teach it, yeah, um so obviously, we did a lot of stuff about you know different forms of learning, whether you're auditory or kinesthetic or and all that kind of um approach, but At the end of the day, it was up to me how, what I wanted to teach them and how I wanted to teach them. And that was gauged on their energy levels and the weather and all of these things that maybe you don't necessarily have to be thinking about as much in a classroom. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I guess like I would have, I remember a trip I did in the snowy mountains in Victoria and I had on my med form, I had three kids with ADD diagnosed with, ADD on medication and three kids with or varying degrees of um, autism. Yep. Um, and I, and those, I kind of like, if, if I didn't know that, if I hadn't have looked at that med form and I had have met those kids in the bush, I would have maybe struggled to identify a few of the kids that were autistic and, and one or two of the kids that had ADD because in that setting, it wasn't as relevant. Yeah. Like it wasn't, and it was also wasn't as obvious. Yeah. Um, so I've always found that quite interesting um, as a, as like a, a paradigm of, of like, does ADD, I mean, I don't want to, I don't know. And I'm not a doctor, so I don't like to speak too much on that kind of stuff, but is, you know, is th- are things like ADD. If I was, if you told me to go and sit in the classroom for six hours a day, for six years right now Mm -hmm. i don't reckon i could do it yeah
0: (laughs) no absolutely yeah Yeah. and now we just didn't do it
1: no totally yeah um so So, it's definitely
0: um i guess i'm i'm thinking about your the, the arc like the story arc of your life and and as we think about Um, your upbringing in the Northern Rivers and it's pretty funny because like you're arty, you're musical, you surf, um, you've got long hair. Like I'm trying to think of a Northern Rivers (laughs) stereotype that you're not ticking. Um, (laughs) But you grew up in that environment um, and you've been able to say yes to a lot of these really out of the box adventurous experiences that in in my observations of your life seem to have added so much richness for you. Um, What is it, do you think, that we could be doing to help our young people say yes to those same experiences as they come across their horizons
1: um on the northern rivers thing, I guess I don't have crystals, so i don't know if <laughs> I, I don't I don't tick that box unfortunately <laughs> um, but uh i don't know it's a tricky one like i I grew up i think it's i think to to examine my own life and to to like looking at where I got to with those trips. Um, I, I grew up going camping. Uh, I was from a pretty like, like a middle-class white family. So I was always had everything that I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a connection with the ocean from a young age. I felt comfortable in the bush. Um, I guess not like straight away, like we didn't do big multi day bushwalks when I was a kid or anything, but we did go camping quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so I guess, and then we did outward bound, I did an outward bound course in your tenant school. Yeah. And then, um, so I, in order to say yes to something like what I, like the trip I did, you definitely have to have some previous. Experience in feeling comfortable and feeling confident. I mean, in saying that, I know people. I have friends who've done like the craziest stuff with no planning and <laughs> little experience, and they're just like, like they're. It's almost like when, you, when you start studying outdoor education and 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 working as a guide and stuff. There's all these things that you can't unlearn. So it's like, if I make silly decisions. I'm going against what I know is
0: best practice. Like it's
1: almost yeah, it's like it's like risk management. Without sounding like dull, it's like risk management. Yeah. But and when I'm alone, my risk management is really different to when I'm with eighteen <laughs> teenagers. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess to roundabout way of answering your question, I think it's 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 a long term uh, a long term uh, process and i i'm i'm of the opinion that if you live in say if you grew up in you grew up in sydney and your parents don't have experience in the outdoors then i i, I believe that there, there should be a much more integrated system of of outdoor education in schools because uh, i'm actually funnily enough just in the last couple of days been looking into whether into doing a research Piece for a university on um, the New Zealand model of outdoor education because it's it's a much more integrated system of of in their education system, and I think like it can only benefit people that are already exposed to that stuff. It can only you know enhance their experience, and for those that aren't privy to it growing up, if you can go to school and learn that stuff, then you have a much you're much more likely to go and do a bicycle trip in the future or or you know whatever adventure you may choose yeah um uh, it's definitely you know you can't just turn around tomorrow and go and do that yeah. i mean you could but and you might be fine like the old ignorance is bliss thing yeah but it's yeah. definitely it's definitely a it's a process
0: yeah, there's some um, scaffolding there's some building up that yeah
1: definitely there's through. foundations
0: yeah awesome um i might i'd love to get your thoughts just as we close on uh, a lot of our listeners are teachers and work in the education sector um and a lot of what we've talked today about uh, i guess revolves around um big big life adventures the ability to take risks um, the significance of life in the bush and giving those experiences to young people. But is there any transference, do you think, between the dispositions that allow all of that to take place and learning in the classroom? Like what what takeaways would you leave a classroom teacher with in terms of um, elevating the wellbeing and the life satisfaction of their students, even within the confines of regular school life?
1: I mean, the first thing that comes to mind uh, which we're always taught in the outdoor setting is change your space, like change your environment. So even if you're a teacher at a school, like whether you need permission from the principal or whatever it may be, take him out onto the oval for an hour or, or, you know, go into a different room or because, and I've seen it happen where if you're doing like we are, we're doing, we do a lot of, um, I guess, learning through, I mean, I call them games, but they're kind of um, more than games. I can't think of the word right now of what we use, but initiatives. So even in something like an initiative, you might explain the initiative to them here and then you bring them over here and then talk about the next step or or when they've had a go, you bring them over. And so the value of changing a space is, I think, really good for like concentration and... Um, and that even might be a simple thing as, you know, you at the front of the class mm-hmm. for an hour and then you go and stand at the back of the class and everyone's got to turn around and yeah. they're looking at a different wall and it's just, it's still in a classroom, but yeah, it's they've giant. shifted their attention. Yeah. Um, because we're not, I mean, I don't know, most humans aren't that good at sitting still for a long period of time. Yeah. So especially kids. <laughs> so um, yeah, even just like changing the space, it can be as simple as like alternating where you're standing in the room. Yeah, um, which I don't know, probably a lot of teachers do do. Um, but yeah, like something as simple as that. Yeah, can
0: be I had really that benefit. forced upon me once. I walked into like a year eight class, and I was a few minutes late, and they'd rearranged the whole room, and they were facing the back of the room, and they thought it was this huge joke, and I came <laughs> in and uh, pretended not to notice and just started teaching like normal, and like they just got so itchy (laughs) and then finally we all just lost it together but oh yeah but that's that tells me that they were craving that change
1: yeah it's almost like
0: evidence of what you're saying that's really cool Yeah. yeah fantastic so um tom it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast and um you know when i met you we sat down for like a few days and talked and i feel like we've just given our listeners a tip of the iceberg Um, So I really encourage everyone, if you're interested in following um, the photography, the writing, um, the adventures of Tom Wolfe, um, check out his website. We'll put the links um, in um, the podcast details. And yeah, it's been absolute pleasure talking to you, Tom. Yeah, Um,
1: no, thank you very much.
0: And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Invictus Cast. Bye for now.